But today we are going to be in Jonah chapter 3. Next week's our last week in our series through Jonah. And uh, man, I'm excited about, about this sermon. Uh, I was preparing it and I started thinking about those signs. You've probably seen them. Scott, can you show them the, show them the sign? Here's your sign. The end is near. You ever seen those? I feel like I've seen them in all kinds of movies, in TV, in comic strips. I went online, I was going to show you just a montage of different uh, The End is Near signs, found Homer Simpson in one, and you know, all kind of stuff. They're everywhere. And it got me thinking, where did this come from? Who decided that it was a thing to wear a sign that says The End is Near? And so I did Wikipedia, where did this sign come from? And Nobody knows. I guess it's just, you know, as long as human beings have been living together in community, community, somebody's been announcing the end of the world. The end is coming. We know of uh, the boy who cried wolf, Chicken Little. Uh, we turn on the news, see the newscasters, the politicians, the economists, the physicians. Everybody tells us, man, the world is coming to an end. Our, our world's hanging by a thread. The end is near. Because of that constant static, we see these signs and we just assume the person who's wearing them is a nut. They're crazy. We know theoretically, hypothetically, yeah, the end of the world is near. Sure, Jesus is coming back someday, but this guy is taking that a little too seriously. Uh, the end is not that near, you know, and if it is that near, this is probably the wrong way to go about announcing it. The static just inundates us, and so we just tune it all out. You know, we've lived through Y2K. We've seen the whole global warming thing. We, we know it all, man. Everybody knows the world is coming to an end, and, you know, nobody knows exactly when or what it's going to look like. Is it going to be a frozen hellscape, or is it going to burn up in the sun? Who knows? But it's coming. And then I got to thinking about Jonah. What would it be like if for once the guy with the end is near sign was right? What if he wasn't a nut job? What if he wasn't loony? What if he was actually there announcing God's word? The end is near. It's imminent. You got 40 days. Would we be the type of people who would take that to heart? Would we respond appropriately? Or would we just, yeah, what a crazy loon. You know, and that's what Jonah chapter 3 really challenges us with. Is that we're going to see Jonah walk into a, a metropolis the likes of which you and I stay away from. The city of Nineveh. And do the ancient equivalent of holding a sign that says the end is near. And shockingly, everybody is going to listen and respond. It's amazing to me. And i got to believe that even though we're separated from Nineveh by thousands of miles and thousands of years, God's word comes to us just as fresh and real as it did through Jonah. And, and this is how I would put it. The end is near is probably a little too succinct for a preacher. I've got three points to make. One, judgment's coming, but change is possible because God is merciful. And that's what I want you to see this morning, that judgment is coming, but change is possible because God's merciful. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to read straight through Jonah chapter 3. It's only 10 verses, and it's a really compelling story. So I hope you're hanging on to your seats and you're ready for this plot twist. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying... Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. 
And then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Now, if you've been here the past couple of weeks, you've been tracking with Jonah's story. This is our fourth Sunday in this book. And you'll remember how Jonah began his illustrious journey to the gates of adventure called Tarshish. The word of the Lord came to him and said, Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for its wickedness has come before me. And our narrator tells us that he did arise. He, he got up. But instead of going towards Nineveh in the east, he fled for this exotic paradise known as Tarshish in the west. And as he ran as far and as fast from God as he could, God pursued him. And he sent a terrible storm out on the sea. So bad that Jonah's pagan sailors who had offered to take him to his destination were overcome with sheer fear. These are seafaring men. They'd seen storms before, but they recognized immediately that this thing was different. This was not just any old storm. This storm had a purpose. It had been sent by a god. And so they frantically start trying to figure out which god it is that they had offended. And as they are ransacking the ship, trying to lighten their loads so they don't capsize, they find this prophet from Israel sleeping below the deck, peacefully avoiding God. And so when the captain told Jonah to get up, he brought him out on the deck and asked him all these questions. Who are you? Where are you from? What God do you serve? Etc., etc., etc. And Jonah has to fess up that he was an Israelite and a servant of the Lord, and he had been running from God. And so they asked him, what should we do? And Jonah told him to throw me overboard, and the sea will calm down. And so that's what they did. They threw Jonah overboard, and when the sea calmed down, they offered praise and thanksgiving to the God of land and sea who had showed them his mercy. Meanwhile, not back at the ranch, but below the surface, Jonah is sinking to his death. He gets to the bottom of the sea. He's gasping for air. He feels trapped by all the pressure of the water. The weeds are wrapped around his head. He knows this is it. And in a last-ditch effort, he fires off an emergency prayer to God. He says, God, you've got to save me. And lo and behold, God heard his prayer. And God did save him by sending a giant fish to swallow him up. And after spending three days in the fish and having time to think about his foolishness and God's faithfulness, that fish spit him out on dry land, where Jonah apparently quickly got back to business of heading to Nineveh to preach. I love the way chapter 3 holds off almost like a mirror, Jonah's reaction. In chapter 1, God says, arise, go to Nineveh, and Jonah says, no way. Chapter 3 says, God said, arise, go to Nineveh, and Jonah said, yes, sir, aye, aye, sir, on my way. He did so according to the word of the Lord. 
And after he got there, he got right down to business. He's a man with a fresh start, ready to get right back where he needed to be with God. He walked into that city. He just made it one day and started announcing God's message. Rather than an announcement preaching against Nineveh, call against Nineveh for its wickedness comes before me, God sends him instead to preach to them. And he announces this strange message. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In other words, the end is near. Judgment is coming. I want you to imagine with me, you are an ancient Assyrian living on the Tigris River in the beautiful place known as Nineveh. And in walks a foreigner from a strange place announcing to you certain destruction awaits you in just 40 days. Uh, I have to believe, had I been there, I would have treated Jonah just like we treat those guys with the end is near sign. This guy is loony. He's crazy. And if we think about it that way, we're liable to miss its significance. This short little sentence, and I'm sure Jonah preached more. You know, preachers always have plenty to say. He just gave us the sermon in a sentence. And so I'm sure Jonah said more, but in the nugget, in just the little shell of a sermon, yet 40 days and Nineveh is overthrown, there are so many deep connections that show us its significance. First off, Jonah says 40 days. If you're a reader of the Bible or you've been around church very long, you know 40 is a significant number in the Bible. And Moses went up on Mount Sinai and communed with God face to face when he received the law. He was there for 40 days, and he did that twice. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of their rebellion against God. Even we read in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus was baptized, he was compelled by the Spirit into the wilderness, and he was tempted for 40 days. And so the astute Bible reader you are, I know you hear this sermon, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown, and alarm bells go off. You're like, there's something to this. In fact, the deepest connection, I think, is the original 40-day reference in the Scriptures, which comes to us in Genesis chapter 7, when God sent a great flood in judgment on the earth. The, the flood, you'll remember, uh, happened after God came to Noah, told him to build an ark out of gopher bark, and he did, and all the people thought he was crazy. This guy's a loon. The end is near. But he was obedient, and he built the ark, and Genesis 7:12 says that God sent the rains, and it rained for 40 days and for 40 nights. Um, because of that, the flood becomes sort of the paradigm, the lens through which all other acts of God are viewed. God pours out his wrath like water. He floods the earth. And Jonah's message to Nineveh brings that to bear. He told Nineveh, you guys are going to suffer the same fate as the wicked world that was before the flood. There's another connection, uh, this verb, overthrow. The Hebrew word literally means to turn over, like you're going to turn a plate over and dump all the food on the floor. It can also be used to talk about turning around and changing. Throughout the Old Testament, though, its primary use is to talk about God's act of destruction when he pours out his wrath. For example, in Genesis 19, the word overthrow is used to describe judgment, God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. He overthrew the cities of the valley. Uh, he talks about this in Deuteronomy 29 through Moses when he warns his people not to abandon his covenant. And Moses says in Deuteronomy 29:23, he says, If they abandon God, then God will abandon them. And their land will be as brimstone and salt, a burning waste 
unsown and unproductive, and no grass will grow in it, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. And when Jonah came into Nineveh preaching this message, it's a simple sermon, um, but it's got so much deep significance. He, he was really trying to get the people's attention. With something beyond the end is near, there were deep connections, deep roots into who God is and how God works in the world that they needed to hear. That the Lord was warning Nineveh of coming judgment for their wickedness, just as he had warned the people in Noah's day and as he had warned the Sodomites and the Gomorrahites through Lot. God gave them a warning, and when they didn't listen, he poured out his judgment. Now, from our relative security, and I say relative, from our relative security in America, this fire and brimstone message seems awfully strange. I mean, you, you imagine the guy, maybe a Jonah-like character, who walks downtown Austin, starts preaching the gospel. You better repent of your sins, or when you die, you're going to hell. There are those guys. We call them street preachers, and they don't fare too well in the world. They get mocked and assaulted and insulted. Even Christians kind of turn their face away, like, man, those guys are a little bit extra. You know what I mean? But that's who Jonah was. He did it. He would have gone into Austin, Atlanta, Portland, you name it. He would have gone and preached the message. I mean, think about what if a, a pastor stood up here and preached one of those fire and brimstone sermons. I've heard from some of y'all's testimony. Uh, I love the way Clinton Gordell talks about how he was saved at Mineral Springs Baptist Church. Our, uh, an evangelist came through and did a revival, and Clinton will tell you, he preached one of those good old-fashioned fire and brimstone sermons. And it got through to Clinton. And it got through to a lot of y'all, I'm sure. But they don't teach you to preach about hell in seminary. And you don't find a lot of TV preachers making that the staple their diet. And that's a kind of an off-the-topic subject. We all know it exists, and we know the end is coming, and we know that someday we're going to have to face reality. But for now, can't you just teach me how to be a good husband or something? Don't get at me with that end is near stuff. You know, even some Christians would say something like this. You know, instead of all that stuff, that wrath and everything, let's just proclaim the loving message of Jesus as if those things were opposites. Like on the one hand, you got this angry, crazy, psychotic God of the Old Testament who just wants to burn people down. And then you got Jesus in the New Testament who offers us something totally different. But listen to the way John the Baptist warned the Israelites about the Messiah's coming. This is in Matthew 3.12. He said, His winnowing fork is in his hand and will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he'll gather his wheat into the barn but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's your loving Jesus. Even Jesus himself, when he's warning his disciples, he talked about his return at the end of the age. And he says, when the Son of Man comes, it'll be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they didn't even understand what rain or a flood was until it came and took them all away so will the coming of the Son of Man be. You know, the end is near. Okay, we heard you that. You know, you've been saying that for 2,000 years, and it hasn't come yet. The Apostle Paul made it a staple of his ministry. He, he went into the city of Athens, the great center of ancient learning. We talk about Athenian philosophers today. Our Western culture and legal system is built on their insights. And he had the audacity 
to look these learned men in the face and tell them that God has overlooked the times of ignorance, but now he's declaring that all men everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness through a man which he's appointed, having furnished proof to everybody by raising him up from the dead. Yeah, I know it's unpopular, and I know that maybe I'm, I may be the only preacher in the United States of America today who brought to you a fire and brimstone sermon, but there is no denying the message of the Bible that judgment is coming. It will be here one day or another. I mean, the Lord Jesus may not return to the world in our lifetimes. We may not get to see him with our own eyes riding in on a white horse with armies of angels behind him, his robe dipped in the blood of his enemies. But the author of the letter to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 9 that it's appointed once for man to die, and then after that comes judgment. And so whether we see the Lord in the face and stand before him in this life, or whether it's after we cross over to the next, one day each of us will stand before him. And the Bible tells us in Romans 14.10 that each one of us will give an account of himself to God. The same God who sent Jonah to Nineveh, John to Israel, Jesus and his disciples, the whole world, is going to weigh your life. He's going to go over with you everything you've done, every thought you've thought, every word you've spoken. What will he find? He probably won't find the kind of wickedness and violence he saw when he looked at Nineveh. These are people who filleted their enemies and pasted their skin on their city walls. You're not guilty of that, I'm sure. But what will he find? Pride? Selfishness like the pre-flood world? The thoughts of their heart are evil consistently, over and over. That's all they think about is evil, satisfying themselves. We find laziness, filthiness of speech. We find idolatry, rebellion, disobedience to parents. What will he find? Will he find a perfect and obedient life? Have you ever thought about it? Judgment is coming, and so you'd better think about it today. And as you do, let me encourage you Judgment's coming, but change is possible. And I think the amazing thing about Jonah is that despite the fact that he walks into an ancient metropolis, and it says Nineveh is a three days journey, and there were three cities that set in a sort of triangular pattern that made up this Assyrian area of Nineveh. And so I think this, we're talking more than just Nineveh. We're talking about the Nineveh metropolitan area. One commentator called it Greater Nineveh. He walks into this place full of people. I mean, just, just tons and tons and tons of wicked people, idolaters, completely lost, no clue about the right way. And you got to think that in the back of his mind, he thought, this is useless. The last thing these people want to hear is a message that I'm bringing. These people are set in their ways. They're totally wicked. I mean, he's thinking they're all going to be disinterested in the message. They're not going to give him the time of day. But what's the point? Yeah, he knows God is merciful and God could save people, but does he really want to save these people? And it's like as soon as he opens his mouth, people start beating down the door, repenting. It says they believed in God. They believed in God. That phrase probably rings a bell for you too. It comes in Genesis 15. Abraham believed in God and it credited him as righteousness. These people trusted God, they believed the word was true, that they were going to die. That judgment was just around the corner. They only had 40 days to figure this thing out, and they'd better get to business. And so immediately, 
They caught a fast and they put on sackcloth. Even their king took off his royal robes and put on a goat hair shirt set in ashes. They heard the end is near message and they acted on it. Why? What's different about them? What makes them perk up and listen close when we write people off as crazy? Well, the ancient annals of the Assyrian kings tell us that in the 8th century B.C., the Assyrian Empire went through major political turmoil and infighting. They suffered recurring famines, revolts, and plagues. They experienced eclipses of the sun and moon. You know, superstitious pagans, they knew there was something more to this than just, you know, polarization or inflation. They thought maybe there was a God out there who was trying to get their attention, and they had interpreted all these things as terrible omens of their future. So when Jonah showed up, announcing 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown, he wasn't coming to a bunch of disinterested pagans. He was coming to a people prepared to hear the word of the Lord. Oh, man, that'll preach right there. A people prepared. All the circumstances of their political life had prepared them to hear Jonah's message. I don't have to ask you to think back about the last couple of years of our life in America. I mean, I don't think anyone would say that these have been the best years of our life as a people. A political turmoil, check. Famines, toilet paper shortage, check. Plagues, check. And these are just, you know, happenstance. Just, that's what happens, natural selection, viruses mutate, whatever. But I wonder what God is trying to prepare us for. Do you think he is calling people to take notice, to remember what his word says about the end? And so in that light, maybe their response makes sense. They call for a fast, and they put on this sackcloth. Sackcloth comes from the Hebrew word sack, which means like a goat skin garment. And so what they do is they, they withhold food from their body. Fasting was a, a common way in the ancient world of expressing grief and sorrow. Uh, their soul was sick. Their soul was torn apart. They felt just completely unhinged within, and they made their body get in on it. They withheld the things that sustain their life as an expression of their hunger and desire for some kind of answer to this 40-day problem. Sackcloth was a rough fabric made from this coarse goat hair, and you can only imagine how uncomfortable it would be if that was the only garment that was on your body. It would be totally miserable. And that was the point. They were spiritually miserable, and they put their physical condition in the same place. They wanted to feel within them the grief and sorrow for their sin, and nobody was immune. I mean, the king's proclamation says that man, beast, herd, or flock couldn't taste a thing. Don't let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. I mean, from the greatest to the least, and this is actually documented in the ancient Near East, when kings would get a message of a, of a coming destruction, they assumed that that destruction was coming on them because they represented the people. And so they would exchange places with a commoner 
for a particular season of time. 30 and 40 days was not uncommon. The king would put somebody else in his throne, so if the gods were after the king, that guy would get it, and he'd go be a farmer for 40 days. This is normal. This is the way it worked. When people got a terrible message, they put their body in motion, and they reacted. But the thing that's the most amazing is that this wasn't just simply external or rituals that they were going through like they had done a thousand times before. This was genuine, from the heart, repentance. I mean, the king said, Let men call on God earnestly, that's verse 8, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. I mean, the king of Nineveh basically agreed with Jonah's message. Forty days in Nineveh will be overthrown. You're right. We deserve everything we've got coming because we have been wicked and violent and evil. And unless we turn around and start doing something different, we deserve everything that's going to come upon us. Essentially, the king comes to the place where Jonah did, where he recognized that God was right to judge him and to pursue him and to punish him for his disobedience. And all he could do was say salvation comes from the Lord. That's what this king gets to. He says, who knows, perhaps the God will see our prayers, he'll see our repentance, and he'll relent from the... Uh, atrocity, the calamity that he says he's going to bring upon us. This is genuine change of heart stuff. Change is possible. The Bible calls this change repentance. And it tells us over and over and over that repentance is the key to experiencing the mercy and grace of God. One theological dictionary describes repentance like this. It says, repentance is a spiritual act of turning your back on sinful actions and attitudes that are offensive to God and His nature. I, I love the way the Proverbs talk about it because it, Proverbs give us such a real-to-life picture. They say there's a way that seems right to a person, but its end is death. And you know what that means because you've experienced the end of your way and it's been death. You've come to the end of it and you've seen its results. And occasionally, as you're walking down that path, which is end is destruction, God will give you clarity. Maybe it's a man who says the end is near. Forty days in Nineveh will yet be destroyed. Or maybe it's a preacher up here trying to compel you from the scriptures to see it. Maybe it's a mom who has to correct you extra harsh. But somewhere along the way, God gets your attention. And he says, if you keep down this path, your end will be death. And in that moment, you have an option. You can either continue knowing full well where your life is going to end, or you can turn around and run in the opposite direction. And that's repentance. Repentance is turning around and saying, I don't want any part of that. I'm going the other way. I'm going the way God wants me. See, repentance acknowledges the responsibility that Psalm 7 paints in bright lights. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man doesn't repent... He'll sharpen his sword. His bow is bent and made ready. Judgment is coming, but change is possible. Repentance is available even when Jesus came to preach. You know, you'd think he'd preach something good and kind-hearted or something, but he just comes right out of the gate. Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. Repentance. Martin Luther, the German reformer, said the, the whole of the Christian life is repentance. Repentance, repentance, repentance. Without it, without genuine from the heart change that reforms our way of life, we are bound for destruction and judgment. But with repentance, we can experience the mercy 
of God. Repentance involves this inner change of heart, and clearly the Ninevites had it. Do you? Have you turned from your sin? Have you ran in the opposite direction? I know some of y'all at camp did this week. I know some little girls did this week. Have you? Because while this story tells us judgment's coming, promises change is possible because God is merciful. I love God's evaluation of Nineveh's response. It says in verse 10, When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he didn't do it. If I Just the first readers of this book, I'm imagining ancient Israelites reading about their enemies, the Assyrians, who just a couple, uh, maybe 150 years later, end up walking into their capital city, burning it to the ground and carrying them off as slaves reads this story of Assyrians repenting and God relenting from the disaster, and their mind just explodes. Seriously, them? You're going to forgive them? You're going to relent from the calamity? You could have head off a lot of evil if you'd wiped them out like you did Sodom and Gomorrah. But to think that way totally misses who God is in himself. That God is merciful, compassionate, steadfast, abundant in his loving kindness, showing steadfast love to generation after generation after generation. That is who God is. God is merciful. It misses it completely. You know, he even promised through the prophet Jeremiah, he said, at one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot them, to pull down or to destroy it. But if that nation against which I've spoken turns from its evil, I'll relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring against it. This is who God is. It's why Peter could say that it's not God's desire that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. We imagine God as this vindictive ruler of the sky who casts thunderbolts and rains fire on wicked people, but in his heart of heart, what he wants more than anything for us, for you, is not that he'd gain some satisfaction by watching you burn for all eternity, but that you'd know the deep and everlasting joy that comes from knowing him. That's his heart. God is merciful, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, he, he means that when he says it, and he shows us that. It says that he loved the world so much that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but would have everlasting life. That is the heart of God for our world, for every person who ever walked the face of the earth. His desire at his core is that they would know him. And so when Jonah walked in, it wasn't by accident that Jonah showed up when he did. All these events circulating in ancient Assyria. God had prepared every one of the people who witnessed Jonah firsthand to receive that word. To know that judgment was coming, but change was possible because God was merciful. And when he saw their repentance, he relented of the calamity. Y'all, I hope it's not hard to miss. I hope I've made it plain. There's no escaping the startling truth of this passage. Judgment is coming for us, but change is possible because God is merciful. I know it, it may not arrive tomorrow. I, you may not die tonight, but eventually the end will be near. It will be imminent, and, and then it will come, and it will have been too late 
There won't be any second chances. And then you'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and you'll give an account for your life, and you'll have to be exposed before His Word, identifying within you every failure and fault. And because God is just and holy, and because He deserves from us all that we are and all that we have, He will have a mark against each and every one of us. None of us will get through. Judgment's coming. Are you ready for that day? And the men and, Nineveh, the men and women of Nineveh were not ready. They were not ready. There was a moment in time before Jonah was there. They were not ready. Without the word of warning that came from Jonah, they would have perished. But after Jonah came, they were in the mercy and grace of God. He relented from the calamity that he said he was going to bring about them. Now, have you made that transition from being under the judgment of God to being in his mercy and grace? The Bible tells us how a person transitions from that. And it isn't through any external or ritualistic show of repentance. It's not about proving to God that you really mean it or about doing enough penance that you'll somehow outweigh your sin with your good works. It's nothing like that. It said, God says that while we were yet sinners, he sent his only son Jesus to live the sinless life that you and I should have lived and owed to God as our creator. And then Jesus, at the end of that life, died on the cross, not for any sins that he'd committed, but for the sins of his own worst enemies. The people who, if they could, would obliterate him from their consciousness. He died for those people. Mike said it, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before any of us had ever done anything good or bad, God had set his love upon us and determined to send his son. Have you trusted in Jesus to save you from your sins? Have you transitioned from death to life? You know, I love the verse in 1 Timothy 1 that says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You don't surprise him with your sin. You don't catch him off guard. He knows full well who you are. Like the Ninevites were wicked, objectively so. The whole world knew these are despicable human beings and they deserve to get everything they've got coming to them. And yet God in his mercy sent Jonah and he sent Jesus for us to save us when we were at our worst. This morning, his invitation to you is just as it was for the Ninevites. Judgment's coming. Change is possible. I'm merciful. And I challenge you to make that transition. To repent, to leave behind a life of sin and to pursue the life that Christ would have you live. You know, it may be that you know you're here for a reason, God's speaking to you now, and you don't know what to do. You want to respond. You've got to do something about this. He's right. I am a sinner and I am under the judgment of God, but I want to know His mercy. Maybe what you need to do is pray a prayer. God, you know I'm guilty, and I deserve judgment. I get everything that I got coming to me. But I believe that you've provided mercy for me in Jesus. Save me. That's it. And I have the audacity to believe, and I'm acting on this belief, and trying to become more confident in it, that God wants to save you more than I want you to be saved. Jesus says that there's more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents than when 99 people make it who never needed repentance. If you, if you pray a prayer like that, if, you, if you're like the Ninevites and you hear it, judgment's coming, but God is merciful, I've got to get in on that. It says all of heaven rejoices 
over it. When you pray that prayer, when you make that commitment, when you move your heart towards God, He sees it. And He relents from the calamity that He says He was going to bring. You know, beyond that, one of the things that's pretty startling about this passage is the over-the-top reaction of sitting in ashes and wearing sackcloth and fasting. And, and I just got to believe that that's instructive. That many of us, and, and you, know, you know you've been here, I've been here, we make these commitments in our heart. No, oh, you're right, God. I gotta, man, I've got to get after it this week. I've got to do better. I've got to stop yelling at my kids. I've got to focus my time in the Bible. I need to pray more. I need to be a better husband. You know, we make these personal and private commitments in our heart. And about Tuesday, we forget about it. Things get tough. And yeah, we made the commitment not to be mad at our kids, but man, my kid just colored on the wall. But I think something's up with the Ninevites. They knew something that we instinctively try to shun. That commitments made in our heart are good. But when we put our body into motion, acting on those commitments, that's when everything comes full circle. That's why James says that the person who's blessed is not the person who hears the word, but the person who does what the word says. And so this morning, I would challenge you to put your body into motion in a show of your desire to turn from your sins and to trust in Christ. You know, the New Testament gives us a clear picture of what that looks like. In fact, uh, another fire and brimstone preacher named Peter once preached a sermon to a bunch of angry religious people. And he said, God has sent his son Jesus and you men crucified him. And by the time he gets to his sermon, he doesn't have to offer an invitation. They're beating down the door. What must we do to be saved? And Peter tells him, the end of Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is more than an external ritual. It's a symbol of an inward reality, a desire to be dead to an old way of living and alive to a new way, to offer yourself not as a slave to sin, but as a slave to God in Christ, to identify publicly with the new way of Jesus that's beginning to bubble up from within you. And so I challenge you this morning, put your body into motion and be baptized. I went out this week to Walmart and bought gym shorts in every size, in faith, that somebody needs to put repentance in action. Today's the day. You made private commitments, you know, I got to get right with God, but no, today's the day. The baptistry's full, and it, they'll tell you it's hot. <laughs> Nothing keeping you back. We got a t-shirt and a change of shorts. You can get changed and be baptized. Put your repentance into action. And then, lastly, praying a prayer and being baptized, good. But what if you've already done that? What if you've already made a private commitment in your heart and you've asked Jesus to save you from your sins and you've been baptized a long time ago? Well, Luther's quote guides us through. Repentance is all of the Christian life. And I've been in ministry long enough and been a Christian long enough, quite frankly, to know that we often assume repentance is something those Ninevites need to do. But us Christians forget that even we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, We all must appear before his judgment seat 
so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Brother, sister, Christian, I would encourage you to consider what sins it is that you should repent of. Have you made peace with your sin? Have you just assumed it's a character flaw, personality quirk, you got your anger from your dad and there's nothing you can do about it? All of the Christian life is repentance. God's desire for you is not that you'd be solidified in your sinfulness, but that you'd be conformed into the image of his son. Don't make peace with your sin. Maybe you need to put your body into motion. You need to kneel before the Lord in submission, confessing to him every sin that he knows already but that you've made peace with and assumed that's just going to be the cross you carry the rest of your life. Now, the cross you've been called to carry is the cross of Jesus, which says, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, his anger, his personality flaws, his character traits, take up his cross every day and follow me. Kneel before the Lord and confess your sins to him because enough time has passed for us to live in the darkness. The end is near. Just a few moments, Mike and the band is going to come and lead us in a song. And if you want to be baptized, there's going to be some men and women down here at the front, and they'll take you up and, and get you prepared. If you need to pray with somebody, I'd love to pray with you. There's nothing in the world I'd rather do on July 18th than pray with you, help you figure out what your next step is in following Jesus. Will you pray with me?